welcome to Careers in Discovery, where you'll meet scientists who've forged outstanding careers in biotech and hear about what they've learned along the way. This podcast is brought to you by Singular, building brilliant biotechs. Samantha Bailey Bucktrout is the Senior Vice President of Research at Acamis Bio, a company harnessing the power of tumor gene therapy in the fight against cancer. Samantha talked to us about her career in cancer immunotherapy, what Greek mythology has to do with modern day biotech, and the importance of a collaborative approach to drug development. This week, I am delighted to be joined by Samantha Bailey Bucktrout of Acamis Bio. Samantha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Tom. I'm really honoured to be invited to this show and, and discuss my career and also my current role at Acamis Bio. Absolutely. Well, we're, we're honoured to have you, Samantha. Thanks for coming on. Um, and I wanted to start by talking a bit about the work you're doing now. It's where we typically kick off. And um, what was interesting when I was looking into the company was that, of course, a lot of cancer companies are taking a cell therapy approach to cancer treatment. You're taking a slightly different angle. I believe that's reflected in the name as well. So it'd be great to hear a bit more about, about what you're doing and about, about the approach that, that Acamis are taking. Fabulous, yes. So Acamis is a gene, uh, gene therapy company that utilizes a viral vector platform uh-huh. with which to deliver therapeutics. Acamis Bio, interestingly, was taken from the name of one of the warriors um, that was in the Greek mythology story of the Trojan horse. Ah, okay. Um, Yeah, so Achimis was a warrior who was within the horse, of course, entered the the besieged castle and um, and then um, destroyed the castle from within. And here within our therapy, which is delivered systemically, which is rather unique across the space that we work in, We are delivering um, DNA payloads that then get translated within the tumour itself. So this is a tumour expressed payload. And we can put up to four novel protein therapeutics that are expressed within the tumour microenvironment. And when you look at our pipeline, we've been choosing immunotherapeutic proteins. So we're really enhancing immunogenicity. within the tumor microenvironment and then have the ability of course to co-opt the immune response and subsequent TME responses as is our desire and um, based on what we express yeah i see okay and and you're developing both the the delivery mechanism and the payload are you or What's the yes, absolutely. Yes. So that's absolutely right. So the delivery mechanism comes from um, a legacy first generation product that was um, generated within the laboratory of Len Seymour at Oxford University. Mm-hmm. And this was part of what is the kind of adenoviral wave of, of, of gene delivery tools, of, yeah. of course, of which are our COVID vaccines. So that came out of Oxford Uni and that AstraZeneca then took on along with Vacatech to to, um, manufacture the the platform. So that's one version. 
Our version is a very unique um, serotype. So most of the adenoviral vectors that are currently in preclinical clinical development are serotype five. Mm -hmm. We're serotype, we're a chimeric, a novel chimeric that comes from serotype 311. And, and that what was so compelling from a, from a novel therapeutic perspective and what Len Seymour and his Greek group did was take a, a, quite a large pool of viruses and do a directed evolution. Right. So, so it's kind of like the generation 1B of viruses um, that has generated a virus that um, replicates only in malignant cells. So malignant okay. epithelial cells support the replication of the virus and not in any human cells that have been tested. Um, well, then also importantly was this virus can infect these tumor cells in the presence of whole blood. Okay. So this screen enabled kind of selecting for low immunogenicity within, yeah. a, within a, the patient population. So we have the ability to IV deliver. And this is what sets apart from many of, of certainly within the adenoviral uh, serotype five space because of strong pre-existing immunity. Adenovirus five is a, is a is a is a virus that infects many children and it right. gives you common cold symptoms. It's yeah. kind of a cold virus. Hence, has been used for therapeutics because it doesn't form a, a really serious pathogenic safety risk. Mm -hmm. um, um, so ours, uh, our, 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 our platform doesn't have this pre-existing immunity. And unlike a lot of other viruses that have a directed engineering approach um, that then supports tumor-specific replication yeah. or even um, entry, because it's been selected in this way, when you look at the gene deletions and you know, the genetic map of this virus and the mechanisms of selectivity, it's quite, it's very broad mm. and hits a lot of kind of known pathways such as metabolism, um, such as, um, you know, DNA sensing pathways that tumors yes. tend to downregulate. So we've got a multifactorial tumor specific mechanism all in, all built into this. And it was the virus that determined it, not us. So sometimes okay. biology is smarter than us, unfortunately, <laughs> unsurprisingly. You know, I did one of the very early interviews I did on this podcast uh, was a company that were doing work in immunology. Uh, I can't remember the exact detail, but the, the CEO of that company said something that was really interesting, was that the immune system is so good that it's amazing that we're even alive with the amount of things that are trying to kill us. That's how good the immune system is. Like we shouldn't exist because of so many things that are trying to kill us. So why yeah. reinvent that? Absolutely. <laughs> yes. To quote Jurassic Park, mm -hmm. nature will find a way. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and and so correct me if I'm wrong on this, but um, from what you're saying, then that there's also an advantage in that. The payload itself actually is what destroys the tumor rather than having to rely on there being strength left in the immune system in the patient. Yes, well, it depends which payload okay. that you express, of course, Tom, yeah. um, on what we're relying on the body to provide. Yeah. So 
For example, our clinical candidates or a clinical stage company, we've done a lot of uh, work with our empty vector first to establish the tolerability profile, to have a very large kind of transmed and safety package, which really supports the, the mechanism of the platform that is mm. tumor specific uh, replication and transgene delivery. So that's been very important, a very important stepping stone. Yes. within our phase 1a studies not only to for dose finding of course and the safety but really proof of concept of that our virus is going to be able to be delivered systemically number one mm. and then number two that the that it's safe and that transgene expression isn't all over the body because of course we have a lot of epithelia um, throughout the body yes. and these have been very um, carefully done and we're pleased to be moving forward to a phase 1b study now where we're really looking at efficacy fantastic so within this within the clinical our lead clinical candidate it expresses a full-length anti-cd40 agonist antibody so this is, is what, from an immunological perspective, this is right at the get-go of an immune response. So this is, if the immune response is a car and, you know, and, and we're wanting to go from A to B, this is basically us putting the key in the ignition and, mm -hmm. and turning on the starter motor. CD40 kicks off and is very potent kicking off an immune response so for that we are relying on yeah. some things being there to be able to kick a an immune response yeah. off against the tumor that is dead tumor cells of which the immune system can pick up present and recognize so in that concept we're relying on things but there are other scenarios which we've recently published in collaboration and we're continuing to work with a new collaboration and you mentioned CAR T. Mm. So, so for example, um, our vector program and our preclinical assets combine really well with CAR T. Yes. So, taking a therapeutic that negates the need for a very robust immune response in in patients because you're adding the anti-tumor effector mm -hmm. cell, and an R virus can combine really well. Not only enabling a more potent and durable CAR T response, but we can re um we can redirect CAR Ts that have already been approved in the clinic into new indications and new patient populations um, based on what we express in our in the tumor. Fantastic, which should hopefully make you make you a shorter pathway to doing that, right? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. It's fascinating. And and so yeah, I suppose the um the the amount of applications you could have just within oncology with this sort of therapy are uh, vast. Are there particular areas that you guys are focusing on to start with? Yes, absolutely. So antibodies, as I mentioned, yeah. we have a full-length antibody. And actually a full-length antibody is quite an enormous molecule and, mm -hmm. and takes up um a lot, a, a, most of the available amount that we have within our available to play with from a from a DNA payload perspective. But now what we've been able to do in the preclinical research team is express antibody fragments. 
So, of course, everyone's heard, I'm sure, of bispecific SCFVs. Mm -hmm. So these are single chain fragments with the light and heavy chain, but you can make them multi-specific. Yes. T-cell engages are a great example here. Um, um, you can do by tri specific you can you can follow that field if there's a, a need within the tumor microenvironment but also nanobody fragments okay. which these these are uh, have the advantage of being you know some of the smallest proteins and therefore high penetration so if you you know not only are these extremely challenging to manufacture and deliver mm-hmm. um and deliver effectively um, with their poor PK and clearance, getting them, you know, imagine this. We don't have to deal with manufacturing because the tumor cells are the drug factory. Right. And then they're in the tumor microenvironment already. So it's just how do you effectively then engage the, the effector arm of that, whether that's a, you know, a, a, a T cell and a T cell engager or or other other aspects. Mm. But we can do other things like talking about antibodies and other approaches. You can theoretically redirect antibody drug conjugates, for example, right. which there's been breakthroughs lately, at least yeah. from a tolerability of dosing perspective. So again, you've got, you know, an anti-tumor antigen specific antibody bringing in a cytotoxic agent. So, you know, a less toxic chemotherapy that works for a single tumor antigen now, a single mm-hmm. indication. Again, we can broaden that to other indications because we can express that tumor antigen in, in any other epithelial tumor type. I see. So, yeah. yes. We've got a very long list <laughs> on the whiteboards at Acamis Bio I'm sure. of all the things we can do. And it's more about how many hours do we have in the day and dollars in the bank. Absolutely. No, it's very exciting. Um, yes. and, and your role there, Samantha, so you're the, the Senior Vice President of Research. So yes. clearly, you know, still very connected to the to the science of the company and, and the yes. work you're doing there. But just tell us a bit about where you spend your time what you focus on where you know where's your attention uh taken up these days um my attention very much these days is as i've slightly been alluding to is really thinking about the possibilities of the platform mm-hmm. um coming up with priorities there and ensuring that that we as stewards of 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 the of the company and the resources in the company are kind of uh, directing and managing those appropriately because yeah. of, of of the large potential um, of the platform, while also as well a major part of what we do in research is support our clinical colleagues and the clinical development yes. and the transmed, because we're very passionate here about the 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 whole kind of field of reverse translation. Mm-hmm. What's happening in the clinic should very much be informing what the research team is working on next. Yeah, okay. Yes, and vice versa. So, you know, not only is there a great potential from the, the pipeline and the preclinical pipeline that we could develop and deliver, but it's what what's relevant for the clinic what do the patients need mm. not only where is there an un, unmet need but what is the best what patient population is the best fit 
for our therapeutic. Yes. So so it's very, of course, I think, you know, I think as we are, are all in biotech and and uh, early stage drug development, we're very aware that the, the largest hurdle, of course, is hitting your clinical proof of concept for your delivery. So when you when there's therapeutics that have such broad potential, I think it's very important to have a very clear picture mm. of, of your drug profile and, and fit that correctly within your patient population. Yeah, that makes sense. And to be as agile as possible with how that feedback loop works. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So as you know, as much as it's very challenging within a phase one uh, patient population, of course, given the goal yeah. of that is safety studies um, to to really extract um, relevant transmed data, which is very helpful for the research team, mm-hmm. um, your proof of mechanism, biomarkers of response or resistance, all of these things. Um, it's, it's still an important place to spend time and resource um, especially within of course with biotech where you know of course company lifespans are very much dependent on your success within the near term so that's another area where we do spend time um, and 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 really um, um, communicating the expertise within the research department which has been around for quite a while actually mm. phenomenal expertise across the functional areas within research and communicating that cross-functionally internally and externally with collaborators yeah that makes sense that makes sense I could ask you so many more questions about this and how it works and how you're managing to have that that reverse translation work and all this kind of thing but we're mostly here to talk about you (laughs) (laughs) but you know cancer immunology immunology in general and cancer immunology in particular has been a real area of focus for you in your career hasn't it and and I always like to go back to the beginning and Mm -hmm. and why science why immunology why cancer you know why this career for you yes um <laughs> yes i i think like um many many and very unique to your other um interviewees that that you've had and i've really enjoyed by the way um listening to your podcast i'm a huge oh, fan and follow along and i think it's wonderful and insightful and and you know you, i think for folk that listen you feel part of the community and especially mm. that it's uk based is is fantastic yeah. so i think non unique um, interested in biology from an early age and actually i remember in high school my light bulb moment was a you know a genetic within hearing about genetics okay and just the four you know that you have four nucleotide bases that are the fundamental roadmap of everything that is a complex Mm -hmm. organism like a human and that just blew my mind right um and then also it was a female teacher as well and and I've seen throughout my career also I've I've been very inspired by strong female thinkers and leaders too so that was the twofer if you will um and all the way through I think when I think about what what did I feel? Of course, excitement really drove decisions and uh-huh. next step decisions and the long hours working, um, 
the long hours working in the lab and, you know, coming through all the challenges that we have in this career. Yes. Um, it's this fascination, again, that something, there's such a simple very simple mechanism right at the center of a highly complex organism yes. or network or system that creates such, you know, the wonder of what we see today. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I find immunology all the way back to even like I went to Aberdeen. So initially I was going to be, a, of course, a vet. Everyone wants to be a vet. Right and then zoology and then i went up to aberdeen for my undergraduate zoology ecology i was interested okay. in ecology as well again how can small individuals make up an ecosystem mm -hmm. which then is a completely different you know a completely different beast and i just love this idea of synergy and cooperation yes um two years in though i spent a summer up in the highlands looking through sheep dung at grass species okay. <laughs> which kind of made me change my I can see that yeah. <laughs> ecologists are amazing but I realized it it wasn't for me yes and um then went back to cell biology and again like you know even st I still find fascinating you know I could have spent a whole career just working on cell biology <laughs> like how you know, how a cell with all its complexities organizes itself and by the whole levels. And actually, um, that was going to be my choice. Mm -hmm. I'd heard from my friends that were a couple of years ahead of me at undergrad, don't do immunology. It's very complicated. It's full of acronyms and letters and, you know, it's yeah. like a foreign language. And I said, oh, okay, that, that sounds good. I'll just stick to cell. <laughs> but, Thank goodness the honors program became merged. So it was cell, it was cell immunobiology. Right. So that was was a very lucky tangent for me. And then I, I did the immunology course and absolutely fell in love mm. with it. Again, because you've got such a complex system. Yeah. And it's one of the only systems in the body that moves around, you know, right. it's not a it's not a static organ or cell so not only is it highly complex with very different cell types that have different functional states and trajectories to get to those it moves around as well um, it's phenomenal so what are the rules that keeps this whole system in check yes you know as you mentioned at the beginning tom we're constantly fighting all of these you know um external infectious diseases and and other things but that we don't that our immune system stays in check and autoimmune yes. disease is devastating but it's still relatively you know not a massive impact on on human health this is mm -hmm. a phenomenal thing and i actually spent the first 15 years of my career in academia studying immune regulation right through different cell types um, within the field of autoimmunity. So here's the problem. We have an immune system that instead of attacking foreign agents is attacking our body. Yes. What's gone wrong there? And then how do you fix it? Mm -hmm. So so that's what I did. So anyway, so um, did my undergrad. I had no aspirations. I had no academic aspirations. Okay. I came from a 
you know, I was the first person in my family to go to onto a degree. Right. Um, and uh had huge support from my family in particular, my grandmother. And and I think that also was very helpful for me because if there was no inbuilt expectations, then you're not gonna yeah. what's you know, what's the risk? Yeah, let's just do it. True. Um I did internships. I was amazed that you could get funding. You know, you could come up with an idea, <laughs> write a two-page grant and get funding yes. and spend the summer in the lab rather than waiting in a coffee shop, mm -hmm. being a waitress in a coffee shop. So this was kind of the track of what I did. Okay. Interesting projects. Yes. Continuing to look, asking the questions of how can these you know, cellular interactions, particular proteins, particular secreted protein messengers, how could they have such dominant impact onto to health and disease? And that took me to um, my PhD, was mm. at Edinburgh University. When I started my PhD, dendritic cells, which are, you know, one of the, one of the, um, huge control uh, cells of the immune response. This was a burgeoning field. Right. They'd been um, identified and were being studied mainly um, uh, generated from mouse bone marrow in the lab. Yes. And the, 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 I found that there was a lab at Edinburgh University that would cannulate sheep lymphatics so this was a very simple operation and lymph could be collected from sheep and about 200 mils of lymph would be collected per day okay so one could collect the lymph drain in the skin into the to the draining lymph node and here were natural bona fide dendritic cells right. one could ask vaccine questions we would use gold bullet vaccines and track which dendritic cell population was carrying the cells and could do right. studies okay. on the next vivo you know that was very um it wasn't um uh, really challenging the sheep at all they hang out in their pen and do their thing <laughs> so it was a phenomenal model yes very difficult for reagents that was the challenge yes um and it was the interesting subject and the next question that kept me going yeah i, I moved to the u.s um yes met a professor at a conference who was using viruses, interestingly, and vaccines to induce different types of models of multiple sclerosis. And in multiple sclerosis, it was found that you have these waves of T-cell responses. This mm -hmm. was the field of epitope spreading. And the question is, how do these new T-cell responses that drive this terrible disease and, uh, and symptoms of the disease in relapsing remitting MS, how do these get initiated? And yeah. Dendritic cells were a, a strong hypothesis, but this hadn't been looked at. I so I went to his lab in Chicago, and that's what I looked at. And indeed, within the mouse models, um, this is what we saw. Yes. Um, and then that moved me next to, well, here's a cell that regulates the immune response. What else regulates the immune response? That's another professor who came to visit, who was one of the leaders in T-regulatory cell biology. Mm -hmm. 
down at uh, University of California, San Francisco. That's Jeff yeah. Bluestone and invited me to his group to ask a similar question. How do dendritic cells and Tregs interact? Do they? Looking at different disease models um, and was there for around five years looking at the interactions there and we we along in collaboration with two of the postdocs so there was mm -hmm. three of us together made a discovery around how regulatory t-cells actually under certain inflammatory conditions can become unstable yes lose their identity and actually they're like now the bad cops they actually cause trouble rather than stopping trouble i see okay yeah um and this was a quite a significant breakthrough and mm. through working at the, in this lab i really um really became to value collaboration yes close collaboration with people with different expertise mm. and background coming together like we executed on this study like in record time for right. academia because we each three came with very different ways of thinking and also um, expertise to yes. apply together um <clears throat> that's interesting that you learn that that early on in your career because i think sometimes it takes people a little bit of time to understand that they do their phd where they have to be the expert in what they're doing yes and there's real value in that but a lot of exciting things happen at the interfaces between people's expertise right and it's you know it's rare that someone can do it on their own 100 percent. and for me this is I, I think if i was asked what is the one what's the number one thing that i've learned through mm. my career it is, you know, we all can work, use the word collaboration and you can see it on mission statements all yes. over our industry, <laughs> you know, but absolutely, I, I, you know, living that and seeing that those have been the inflection points mm. for me anyway, throughout my career to science that I really believe is impactful and yes has been appreciated by the field as impactful so that's always nice but yes but living that and really seeing um here I've got a good idea but it would be really phenomenal if that could be added this level of expertise this tool this way of thinking yeah and then also even if you start that exploration there's a bunch of things out there that you didn't even know existed mm -hmm. that would be better for to enhance moving forward how we move the move the the science forward yes yes yeah fascinating and then so so up to this point you've very much been led by a series of scientific questions that have kind of led on yes. to each other did that remain to be the case um then I think what happened I did um move into industry after 10 years post-docking mm -hmm. in the US um it was more well I guess it was but on a much broader sense it wasn't an individual science immunologically based question this was the beginning this was the burgeoning of cancer immunotherapy right yeah not only do I love the immune system and you know everything that it can do now we're able to use it as a therapeutic yes so this was i had to get after that yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I understand. yes and um 
but within Jeff's lab was was part of a collaboration with industry um, within this great incubator that was set up at UCSF and Pfizer was running that. So I was collaborating with Pfizer scientists. And when I was invited to go join the group, hey, you want to come and do some drug development in cancer immunotherapy targeting T cells? Yeah, sure. That was <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So that was my move into industry. Um, and it was a phenomenal place because mm. um, didn't little did I know then, but now I know now how special it was because this was a an R and D unit. It was a biotech in South San Francisco, Genentech spin out that had been acquired by Pfizer. Okay, and um, Pfizer R and D made the decision to keep the talent, keep the CSO and let them do their thing. And this was protein therapeutic led. The CSO was a protein guy. And so the team, like that was the core essential unit of the mm -hmm. team and it was indication agnostic. So then there was groups of biologists like around. So if the center was the protein engineers, the biologists were around saying, hey, what cool proteins have you got? What can we do with them? Yeah. Um, so it was, truly fabulous and for you mm. know to, to go in there and learn drug development and again collaboration this yeah. was a collaboration overload party you know so you'd clearly already put emphasis on collaboration was there more emphasis organizationally within Pfizer on collaboration than you had had previously in that case um I think because this was quite a uh one would think across, of course, across large Pfizer, yes. So yeah. as, as as certainly as um programs move towards the clinic, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And you know, one of the things there, of course, you know, within the five years I was there, super fun doing the 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 the, the discovery science and learning an awful lot around protein engineering and all of that stuff. Yeah. The other point that was phenomenal for my career was being seeing the drug development path, working with amazing development leaders. Yes. And seeing, you know, understanding all of the different careers and the um, emphasis that they bring. So now it's about collaboration, but not just at the scientific level, three mm -hmm. immunologists working together. This was collaboration at the, you know, at the functional level. Right. And again, with really excellent teams coming together, that's magic. Yes. You know, um, to be part of the, to be a research lead on an asset and be discussing with the the development lead and the translational medicine lead, mm -hmm. you know, um, as well as the clinician and having everyone there at the table, we had the lawyers there at the table. We had, you know, the, a little bit of the commercial team. BD was there. So we had a small ecosystem that could all work together. Yes. And again, I think that's when value creation was really evident um, for me. And I, I really embraced and enjoyed all of the interactions and opportunities to be working with those individuals. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And then so after a period of time at Pfizer, though, you you took a step into 
uh, not back into academia necessarily, but into a different type of organization. That's right. So um, as, as what happens with, you know, with life cycles of mm -hmm. um, uh, organizations, what was happening was, um, you know, eventually it ended up programs were, were being moved and there was things happening. So I, I, I was all, um, I was interested in exploring outside opportunities. Um, my lovely professor and mentor, Jeff Bluestone, was president and CEO at a newly started um, adventure, uh, the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy. So yeah. this is in San Francisco. Um, this has been this has been a very um, successful and impactful organization over the last eight years and um it's a non-for-profit so it's been very generously supported from sean parker mm -hmm. and um um uh, as as an enterprise to break down the, the silos and the challenges within academia and within industry take what is really working from those two worlds and okay. try and accelerate therapeutics through, you know, through the phase one space. Mm. This was the goal. And it had a, a short term, like the, 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 the initial milestone was five years. Let's make right. an impact. So the team that Sean and Jeff built at the Parker Institute was a phenomenal team. And as I was talking with Jeff, here I'm thinking of this opportunity, that opportunity, blah, blah, blah. What do you think? It's like, why don't you come and check out the Parker Institute? But you guys don't have any labs, you know. <laughs> I, I was looking for a research team. Uh, that's okay. It might happen down the road. Just come, just come. So, you know, as I, of course, met his colleagues and again, speaking to, you know, individual functions and expertise and saw not only what was happening at the Parker Institute, but also the academic network yes. that was involved. And so the academic network and the ideas were in effect the lab, at least from a discovery, that was the discovery engine. And then as far as proof of concept and generating data to support ideas, this was in the translational medicine group that we had and this amazing bioinformatics team. Yes. And then an ability to collaborate with industry at the most promising and compelling drugs, which I started working with the Acomis Bio platform. I see. So here's my circle to where I am today. Yes. Because it was when I was directing research at the Parker Institute that we were looking for, okay, what's very compelling in the cell gene therapy field, um, and as I looked across the as the whole kind of field of gene therapy in the you know within the viral space, this platform really stood out to us in San Francisco. Mm. So I initiated a collaboration with the team at Acomis, and we generated some really cool preclinical assets. And we, we you know, um, the Parker Institute is also funding um, in collaborate, supporting in collaboration with Cancer Research Institute in the US, uh, right. a, a trial within pancreatic cancer now with our lead clinical asset. Fantastic. So, yeah. So that brings That's us back to today. That brings us back to today. <laughs> and I think what's really interesting, Samantha, I sort of touched on it earlier, is that, um, you know, 
I've got the advantage of having you on video here. Most people will be listening to the audio, but they'll probably hear it in your voice. You're still clearly really passionate about the science and mm -hmm. even stuff that you did back in the early days of your career, you, you get excited talking about it. And I think, um, and at the same time, you've managed to progress your career and move into positions of responsibility and, and move forward in terms of your, your sort of own development. And I guess my question or my, my statement for you to respond to, maybe it'll be a question, I'm not sure yet, um, is that I think people worry at the start of their career when they're really passionate about science and, and they love being a scientist, that they're going to have to make a choice and that they're going to have to choose staying connected to the science or progressing their career and I think you know in some organizations that may be true but I think mm. you you mm. managed to do both um mm -hmm. any observations on how you've done that or what's been important to that or or kind of what you've you mentioned collaboration being a key thing that you've learned but things that you've learned that have allowed you to stay connected to the science and progress your career i know i haven't prepared you for this question apologies no, i think all of the other elements of my current role um which are leadership management you know now I'm a member of the executive team, of mm. course, Chemist Bio, which comes with a lot of other layers of skill sets um, yes. that one must have. All of these I still see as um, enabling the science is how I apply it. When you're at the PhD, you spend 90% of your time working out how to do an assay troubleshooting mm -hmm. and building up to the one experiment that ends up in the nature journal yes but, the, but that's the tip of the iceberg all of this work has gone on underneath to uh, to achieve that 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 key data set mm -hmm. and in a way i still think of that right now in my role i do all these other things my day is taken up with all of these other things but it's absolutely necessary for me to sit with my scientific team and look yeah. at the data, what do they need to move forward? What do we collectively think is important? And the aha moment that we have every week in our project meetings. And how do we then, you know, I try and now and use my, all the skills that I've picked up through the training and development and all of these wonderful opportunities I've had to get to where I am. Mm. Let's use those tools to continue to move it forward. And, you know, I hope the kind of the passion and the scientific rigor is what I bring as well to my team. Right. And I, you know, and I hope that I do, even though I'm not, of course, in an academic setting anymore, continue to be a scientific mentor as well. Mm -hmm. um, to my team within the industry environment and you know always have a look on we keep we have kind of like journal clubs and we're constantly doing competitive intelligence and we're constantly looking at the field and challenging ourselves yes and and that as well for the team for everyone in the team it challenges everyone to um be thinking outside the box and keep moving the needle 
Yeah. Well, you know, um, this is why I enjoy biotech so much because there's no plug and play in this industry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I hope I answered your question. Yeah, I think so. I think I think what you're saying really is that um the way you affect the science progressing maybe changes, but that doesn't change the fact that you're progressing the science. Um yes. you know, you go from doing the experiments yourself and as you say doing all this groundwork to get to the one that really makes a difference to supporting other people that are doing that but still providing the direction and providing the insight and mentorship as you said and and I guess allowing I guess going back to collaboration you know you, as you said you realized early in your career that bringing other people's perspectives in with different expertise was really critical yes absolutely and I suppose that has led you to then aligning all those different opinions and the areas of expertise to pursue a scientific goal and and to to progress the work that you're doing for the company and for the institute or for wherever you are at the time. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, back to this just for a second. I think it's always important within a research organization to have mm. that space for the exploration because no matter how smart we think we are and no matter how many times we can draw out a model hypothesis and predict what the experiment result is going to be we're constantly surprised yes and yeah. you know having that bandwidth built <clears throat> into your team to be able to respond to that surprise not ignore it because you're too busy is also you know, important and and something I learned back from Jeff Bluestone is don't think, you know, don't be again, don't be so smart that you know the, the hypothesis or, or right. the rationale for this result. So he had a thing where what's the three hypotheses that could explain this result? Right. Okay. Just think you know, you know why you have this result. What are the alternative hypotheses and how do you test them all? I think. That's what's really important because that kind of level of, of diligence and thoroughness to the, everything that you do day to day, not taking results for granted to move things forward, you know, doing the kill experiment as you're mm. moving a clinical candidate forward is so important because the product that you end up, that you're putting into patients, that you're asking patients to take Yes, you know, especially within early stages, but in all stages of cl clinical development, you have to know that you've you've really critically analysed that asset before it goes in, and that's something that that we do a lot. Move things forward, kill experiment, have backups for if it drops dead, and make those backups even better, and just keep that pipeline rolling. Yes, that makes total sense. And then we've probably covered most of these points if not all of them but uh if you if you were starting again samantha if you were mm. if you were coming out of your phd perhaps or or you first step into industry or wh whatever it might be uh or if you were talking to someone who was doing the same yes. um what advice would you give them what are the things that you think you've learned that have been most critical in your career i would think you know maybe Try to go with your gut. Mm -hmm. 
something that I've done a lot, you know, and as I recount my story of my career, a lot of it is around pe people. Oh, right. I met this very inspiring person. And then I, you know, and our jobs are very demanding. They're 24 seven for, especially within our early career yes. and continue to, to be, but you're at the bench day in day out for mm. years and years and years and i think if you um are in an environment that's not good for your mental health and you're not enjoying then don't do that that's yeah. one of my first um, pieces of advice that i've stuck with the whole way through and i think is is contributed to my continued excitement because i've never had you know, I've been so lucky not to have a kind of a toxic environment right. beat it out of you. Yeah. It, already our job is incredibly tough. You know, we're asking, we're we're trying to figure out things that are incomprehensible and that right. we know small slithers of information about and that we're interpreting wrong most of the time as we look back through the history of <laughs> textbooks open a textbook from 10 years ago in immunology and a lot is we we think of things completely different now yes so you know to to be in a place where you can be open and yourself and allow yourself to make mistakes and um yeah have projects fail and be able to ask the question that you think maybe isn't so smart that a lot of times maybe is, 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 is the advice that I would give to people. And I do, you know, as I speak with my mentees now. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's critical. Um, and then we talked a little bit about the beginning about where ACMIS is and, and all the exciting things that are happening. What can you tell us about what's next? Lots. <laughs> <laughs> well yes um we're we're heavily focused on our clinical candidate mm -hmm. uh, making sure that's in the right patient population and moving that forward as we're as we're looking for clinical proof of concept so we're very excited um about what's going to happen in the next phase for 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 that program um, we have an exciting new collaboration that my team in research and others in the company are working with within, as we always already mentioned, the cell therapy space. Um, we have other lots of new potential of other kind of drug modalities also that I kind of touched on a little bit that yeah. we continue to explore and and look for partners to. So it's around um, um as we continue to build our resource bandwidth, we will continue to, as we say, put put candidates through and really um, flex the muscles of the might of our of our of our um, platform. Mm -hmm. So lots lots of great work and activities coming through. It's very exciting, and we will be we will be keeping our fingers crossed for you. Thanks very much for listening. Careers in Discovery is sponsored by Singular, helping you to build a brilliant biotech company. Biotech leaders spend far too much time, money and energy on hiring and people issues. Head to www.singular-biotech.com to learn how you can recruit and engage your team more effectively so you can focus on developing medicines, treating patients and saving lives.